under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Welcome to it. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'm excited for tonight's show. Because tonight I have on a man, I, well, any guy I have bonded with over hot sauce is near and dear to my heart. But we also share what I would regard as a beautiful philosophy and... He does great work for the Foundation for Economic Education. His name is Sean Malone. He is the director of media for FEE. Uh, studied music performance and composition for film and multimedia at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and New York University. He's gone through an incredible career. I won't give you the whole list here, but because I want to get him on the air. Sean, how are you this evening? Hey, Joey, man. Uh, I am great, dude. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm, I'm very good, and... Uh, I came out with that song, ladies and gentlemen, Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It, because, Sean, you put together a great uh, episode of what you call Out of Frame, a video essay. On a, And when I saw you did this, I was giddy like a schoolgirl, because um, I love those <laughs> hearings. The PMRC, um, when Tipper Gore got her panties in a wad over one of my favorite artists, Darling Nikki and Prince. But um, you put this together, and you uh, had quite an interesting take on this, to me, it was like, well, yes, that, that is the solution. But what made you decide, I want to take on the PMRC hearings? Well, so I, I don't know if your listeners have seen any of the Out of Frame series or anything. I, I, I generally go through life assuming nobody's seen anything I've ever done. <laughs> so uh, the the series is basically, as, as you know, but for everybody else's sake, it's basically a video essay series where I, t I talk about, um, you know, philosophical themes that are sort of embedded in pop culture. And this is a story that I've cared about for a long time. I, obviously, I grew up as a musician and performing and everything else. And the, the Parents Music Resource Center was a huge deal when I was a kid, right? Like the hearings were when I was a little baby, really. I was two, three years old or whatever when, when those happened. But the... the um, the impact that they had throughout my early childhood and probably yours was tremendous, right? Like Absolutely. You started seeing parental advisory stickers everywhere. You started seeing just this, this sort of fear creep into parents, right? My own parents even, right? You know, they would start monitoring the albums that you're listening to. They're getting really afraid that the, some of the lyrics that you're, you know, you're listening to and some of the music that you're listening to is, devil music or satan i mean it's this weird moral panic that, that just creeps in and i remember one of the one of the first albums and this is long after that one of the first albums i remember my parents took away from my my brother actually was uh red hot chili peppers i think it was blood sugar sex magic oh because I... it had the parental advisory sticker on it <laughs> 
I have that album at home on, on vinyl with the sticker. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a great album, but, but, um, excuse me. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just remember all this panic, but then, you know, a lot of the people that I work with are, are younger, you know, they're in their twenties and whatever. And, and I started talking about some of this stuff a while back and, um, I found that a lot of people in my office didn't even know it happened. Oh. You know, they really had no idea that this was a thing. Wow. So I thought it, it, that'd be a pretty good episode to do for, for the Out of Frame series. The other thing that actually originally got me thinking about it was the movie Straight Out of Compton and the, the irony of the way that sort of, or the, I don't know, just not irony, but the, the, the way that creative projects tend to go. I didn't end up putting much of Straight Out of Compton in the in the video essay at all, but um, but it got me to PMRC hearings, and that was a pretty interesting subject. So well, and it's the way the government authorities, I guess, I guess in the case of NWA with F the police, uh, um, you know, the FBI actually sending a letter to them and. Uh, yeah, and so I can see the the censorship. It's not outright censorship. I mean, it is, but they would like to no, claim it it's a threat against and authorities. And that's what you know. I think you know. You were bringing up maybe a little bit is is that uh, you know the Parents Music Resource Center. For those who don't know, you know this is what they call the Washington Wives. It's Tipper Gore and a couple of her friends, basically, who had a lot of connection to high-ranking political figures, you know, senators, congressmen. Uh, one of them was the, the uh, city council chairman in D.C. Th- so they had a lot of political power, right? Or a lot of, they didn't personally, but they were connected to it, and they had a lot of pull. Yes. And so when they start saying, well, hey, this is, we're just asking for voluntary, we just want self-regulation. That's what, we just want you guys, the music industry, we think you're not being responsible. We're not asking for anything unreasonable. We have kids. We want to protect our kids. You know, so it, you just regulate. But then what you find, and, and I, I brought this point up in the, in the video, you know, at the time I grew up in Nebraska, and uh, although I wasn't in Nebraska at that time, but um, Jim Exon, who was former senator mm. of mine, uh, I pull a quote from him from these hearings where he's he's basically saying, you know, I, I don't really want to regulate you guys. I don't really want to curtail your ability to produce and sell records. But if you don't clean up your act, we will, right? We right. being the United States Congress, right? Like that's, that, okay, so it's voluntary, except that if you don't go along uh, you know, it won't be so voluntary anymore. And that kind of threat, like that, that gets to me, right? You know, it's not, cause it's, it's so blatant and yet people sort of accept it. Right. And that, and that happened today. Yes, man. it did. It happened today. Uh, and you're talking about the hearings with, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, um, and dealing with you know foreign influence in our elections and hate speech yep. online, I saw Cory Booker going on about how I guess people advertising homes for sale or apartments to rent were up to the latest federal housing standards, and you know with the real concern of things like redlining against minorities. But it just it was almost like every problem with society and the political system in particular, we're going to project it onto Facebook. 
And yeah. and then the question of censorship does come up and it's it's voluntary it's voluntary regulation in the same way they say taxes are a voluntary system. It's like, well, you we want you to pay it. You fill out the forms, you send in the money, but if you don't, we might have to get ugly. Yeah, and and that that literally happened today, almost verbatim. Uh, like it was, you could have taken what Jim Exon said in 1985 and put it on the on the stand today, and it would have been exactly the same thing. He said, you know, hey, you guys need to clean up your act, or you know, we'll have to fix it for you. I, I forget who said. I'm looking because I kind of live blogged this whole thing all day right. today <laughs> and uh, and I and I quoted it at one point I forget who said this um, but uh, yeah it was it was almost exactly the same thing he said you know we're uh, I, gosh, I wish I could remember I want to say it was Blumenthal but I'm not I'm not 100% sure I'll track it down at some point but this this whole idea that uh, oh there we go Oh, see, and of course, I didn't. I didn't write down who actually quoted it. But the quote was: "If Facebook cannot or will not fix the the privacy issues that they're talking about today, then we are going to have to." This is a senator. This is a United States senator who said this. I, I can't remember which one now off the top of my head. But, but, like, that's a threat to me. That's not a. That's a that's a parental figure scolding another adult. A billionaire, no less. Right? right? Like, well, like Mark Zuckerberg is one of the richest men in the world. He just looked sad today. Oh, he he did. He looked... Well, at first, I'm like, is, did he microdose before he went out there? He, his eyes look big. Like, he looks extra focused and scared. I, I think it's just nerves. I think the guy could back up to a brick wall and suck out a brick. And I, I, the poise he had, I would have told him to shove it up their backside. If you don't like Facebook, delete it. I know that would be bad. Zuckerberg's looking yeah. out for his big company and for the, the bottom line. Yeah, but it, and it's, he had a... Uh, phalanx of lawyers behind him. You know, yes. I mean, like, you you saw the guys behind Zuckerberg just nodding or sort of, you know, kind of like, you could watch them like, okay, what's you going to say? All right. Yeah, it's like watching a Masters tournament. You know, you get the little, just little little commentary in the background. Okay, he's going to line up the shot and, <laughs> ooh, just, just two feet off. Yeah, okay. You know, like... <laughs> and so many of them were, well, I'm going to have to get back to you on that, Senator. Like I told you off air, the one that really struck me, and I was doing radio shows while watching this with closed captioning on television. So, I mean, some of it was like uh, Pat Leahy, like, who, by the way, I think was spawned before the beginning of the American Republic. How old is that man? Oh, oh, can you tell me? Folks, he actually had his staff print off memes and put it on a big presentation board. Like, one said, deport, deport, deport now. All these ridiculous memes. So, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, can you tell me the origins of, uh, of uh, these? And Zuckerberg, I think, is actually taken aback, saying... Well, well what would you say? How would you answer that question? No, okay, so this, this is actually a funny story. Years ago, uh, you know, I was I was going to replicate a meme uh, for a company that I was working for, and and our lawyers were like, "Well, you know, we don't really know what the copyright status is of that, so we're not gonna we're not gonna run it. Like, we're not gonna publicly post that." And I was like, "Well, it's it's like it's a meme. 
Right. It's kind of, it, 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 I mean, technically speaking, right, from, from the, the perfect world of the lawyer, it's not public domain, right? Somebody right. somewhere owns the copyright to these memes, but that's not how memes work, right? No. That's, that's not how any of this works. Nobody is doing this because they want to trademark it and then make a dollar off of every share of the meme. They're doing it because they're 14 years old and thought it'd be funny, right? you know? It, and the fact that Pat Leahy doesn't understand this, I, for me, tells you everything you need to know about where they're coming from. But also, like, you want these people as far away from regulating social media, of all things, as humanly possible. The, the, just the, the mere idea that this hearing even happened, much like the PMRC hearings that we kind of started this with, it's, it's mind-blowingly insane. Now, this- I don't know how that happened. I think this one came out of this. What happened today disturbs me more because I think it's coming from a place of the left and Trump stole the election with Russian influence and that whole narrative. But then you also have the populist right saying, why did you ban diamond and silk and call them unsafe? Mm -hmm. And I mean, and some of these are legitimate concerns, but but not at a congressional hearing, (laughs) you know, I mean, that's the, that's the, I totally agree. Ted Cruz said that. And, and I, and look, I wrote this on Facebook. I appreciate the question because I have those misgivings about Facebook quite a bit. I, I think Facebook uh, is, for better or for worse, it's a company with a with a political slant. Yes. Um, I don't think, you know, Zuckerberg talked about this in his response to Cruz. I don't think that Zuckerberg, I don't think Facebook is intentionally a political company, but that's just how people work, you know? I mean... People yeah. hire other people that they they feel connected to and that they feel some kind of kinship with and that they think that they can work with. And part of that creates, a, you know, an element of groupthink that just goes, it kind of has a life of its own at some point. And especially you're talking about Silicon Valley and everything else. So it's no surprise. The, the question that, that uh, Ted Cruz asked, which I thought was really worth answering, but again, not... not because a congressman is telling you to. Right. I wish the market, when the, the market should be, the, 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 I mean, all of the rest of us is, is who Zuckerberg should be answering to. But, but there is this question. Uh, Cruz asked the question, like, of your fifteen to 20,000 people who are vetting comments and reviewing things for their, whether or not they violate Facebook's terms of service or whether or not they're considered hate speech or, you know, unacceptable speech by, by Facebook, you know, what's the political orientation of that group of people? And uh, Zuckerberg, it's, by the way, it's probably illegal for Zuckerberg to even ask that question uh, as, as he's hiring people. Um, But even if it wasn't, that's not how that process works. At the same time, I, I would be willing to bet that a good number of those people, probably the majority are, you know, leftists or they're not really, uh, friendly to conservative ideas or to any kind of non-standard progressive worldview, and if that's the case, then that, that obviously has uh, plays a large role in how they vet and how they decide what to ban and what not to ban. You know, right? And so I think that's a legit question, but well, not for not for 
Ted Cruz. Well, and that's how bad it is, though. I try to explain to my conservative friends that a lot of these folks, when they're showing bias or sort of uh, the news is tilted towards the left, a lot of these folks don't even know they're doing it. It reminds me of when Gore Vidal or George Carlin were accused of the conspiracy theory of history, and they said, no, no conspiracy is required. In the case of, like, Carlin, he said that the guy who runs, the, he's a senator, probably thinks a lot like the guy who runs Goldman Sachs. I mean, absolutely, that they just think you alike know. in the same way that with the PMRC hearings, uh, mm-hmm. there's 20-something wives and a few senators and power players in the D.C. area, but there are millions of people out there who think like those folks. Of of course. So it doesn't require some big conspiracy. It's just this is actually a cultural battle. And I wish, and you made a fantastic point just now, let us, Vidal also said this, I'll propagandize how I want to propagandize. You propagandize how you want to propagandize. We'll let the market and free exchange figure it out. We don't need some government and political control to regulate this. Yeah, and uh, I mean, that's that's what I would like to see happen in general. And for the most part, and this, this is where I think we, we're looking at sort of the history of regulation unfold uh, on the Internet right now, and in particular social media, right? But this, this happens over and over and over again, where there's uh, an entrepreneurial product or a service or what have you that comes out, or even just a cultural shift that happens. And that's fine, for 10, 15 years, or less in some cases, but let's say 10 years, and everything is kind of going fine, and then something goes a little wrong, and suddenly the move is, let's, let's regulate this. Well, the entire internet has been this, this beautiful uh, oasis of free exchange, right? Yes. For, for now two decades, over two decades, really, I don't want to call it like, Obviously, the internet's been around a little bit longer, but let's let's say the, from from broadband on, from when people really started to be able to use the internet all the time, right? You know, and to be able to use the internet for video streaming and for for chatting, and not just uh, you know when I was like a real when I was a lot younger, dial up internet where you'd be on for fifteen minutes to check your email, maybe, and then you're you know you'd get kicked off because the the, the phone minutes would be too expensive, or whatever. Broadband on, right? We've got this great, uh, just wonderful history of freedom of exchange, and it's worked really, really well, and it's brought millions of people benefits and prosperity, and it's it's created, I, I mean, I couldn't even tell you how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions upon millions of jobs. Um, new businesses, new industries have never existed before, new ways of marketing your industries that, that you know, you never had before, new ways of connecting people. And we have Mark Zuckerberg to thank for a lot of that. I, like, I'm, I'll, I'll complain to the end of the world about Facebook, but, like, Zuckerberg created something of fantastic value oh, yes. with Facebook. And, uh, you know, now, if something goes a little bit wrong with it, Senators, congressmen, and then obviously, you're right, a large subset of the population rushes in to say, oh, see, told you this was bad. Let's, we gotta, we gotta control this now. Well, no, it worked fine. And freedom of exchange still works fine. The thing that worries me a little bit more, not more than Congress necessarily, but does worry me is that Zuckerberg seems to be in that camp to some extent. Right. You know, I mean, he's, he's, 
especially in the last several months, you know, since December of last year, really, Facebook is making uh, a lot of policy changes around restricting people's speech. And that's been a little disconcerting, not just restricting people's speech, but also really cracking down on the ability of organizations, including Fee, for example, to actually use Facebook to communicate with people. You know, deprioritizing page posts, um, requiring, you know, like this additional vetting. Um, You know, it's the same thing with YouTube where they're banning, sort of banning certain topics or their their, uh, AI sensors are kind of flagging certain types of speech. Uh, and that you, you want to think that artificial intelligence and, and all those algorithms are smart? Really not, you know. Like right. they, they they don't really make a big distinction between somebody talking about hate speech, uh, you know, from a news or an academic standpoint to discuss it or to you know offer opinions about it versus actual you know, hateful speech. Like they really don't know the difference. So we've seen this this huge swath of people who get flagged or banned. Uh, on social platforms for things that really, e- even if you think that you should ban hate speech, they, they're not even guilty yet. It's almost, it's a weird parallel that just came to my mind. The history of, uh, I think, how liberalism classically understood has been perverted. It starts off as sort of a, a basic rules of the road to help people connect and engage in their their own free way how they wish whether in commerce or speech or religion and then it starts to morph both facebook and i think the history of the west into this ever regulating uh goal search for neutrality and fairness and being on the up and up um and just the term hate speech yes there are hateful things people can say but just like somebody in the 80s might misinterpret a song to represent bdsm somebody today can look at say something from billions of users on facebook and say oh that's hateful it might have been satire it might have been something else i one question that i found very interesting is uh, zuckerberg was asked about uh, myanmar um and oh yeah and he said well we're gonna have to hire more people who actually speak the language there because right now with our current staff we can't understand what's hateful what's not and even if you speak the same language it's there's different interpretations over what's hateful what's not and let's again it comes back to and this is a point you make in the video essay it comes back to let the market decide if the PMRC wants to put out pamphlets and talk with their friends at dinner parties at saying, don't listen to this album, don't listen to that album. Okay, go ahead. But why are we right. talking about this in a congressional... This isn't a homeowners association. This is the halls yeah. of Congress. Yeah. You have yeah. us here... This is... This is... You know, you bring up the... the my point at the end of the PMRC video is that if it was really true that Tipper Gore and, and her her buddies wanted to uh, just give parents more information, right? Well, why not start a magazine like Consumer Reports or Car and Driver or any of the the myriad of of magazines? CNET, for example, yeah. CNET does Wired, right? Does technology reviews. You you can go to CNET right now and you can see whether or not. You know, this next iteration of Apple TV or Google Home or, or just even boring stuff, right? Like, you can go there to see whether or not a, a ham radio is any good, you know? And uh, 
they could have done that, right? They could have started a newsletter. They have a lot of money. Like it's not like they're they're not well off people. It's not like they're they're un you know they have no connections to publishing or media or anything like that. They could have easily gone and published a list that was a newsletter or whatever you know you wanted to do in the eighties and say uh, these are the the you know the, this month's release of albums. We vetted them. We've decided that these are okay for 13-year-olds and under. These are okay for you know, adults, et cetera, right? Right. They could have done that, but they didn't. You know, they went they went to Congress instead. And it, the same thing is happening now. And to your point, the hate speech, uh, you know, all of these things are really... The art of speaking is an art, right? And a lot of people out there... Um, you know, I make my living, you make your living, uh, writing and, and, uh, communicating, expressing ideas, yes. right? And so I, I've spent a lot of time developing writing skills, developing language skills in, uh, a way that hopefully is, is useful and helpful in clearly communicating the ideas that I want other people to understand. Most people haven't, right? Most people are just sort of fumbling around trying to find what they feel like are the right words. And, you know, a lot of times people's emotions get the best of them. A lot of times people say things that they don't realize. So I, this is a this is an interesting story. I was doing a, uh, a video recently with, with someone who used, who's a little bit older, and, and she used a lot of language that was acceptable uh, in the... 70s or 80s hmm. in terms of referring to certain groups of people, but which is not at all acceptable today. Uh, she didn't mean anything by it. She didn't mean anything bigoted by any of the things that she was saying. She was just old enough that that's what she had learned, what she grew up with. Uh, and then culture changed, society changed. She didn't totally keep up with it. And, you know, if I hadn't it, you know, helped her around that, like she would have gone on camera and said things that now people would find to be really offensive. Um, that, that can happen, you know, and it's very hard to judge what's some in somebody else's heart. And I don't really trust, I, you know, I don't really trust Mark Zuckerberg to do it, but I trust Congress far less. Right. I, well, we don't trust either of them, but I, I certainly agree. Let's stop it at the uh, the river political control. When you start bringing <coughs> the federal government, excuse me, and Congress into things, um, it especially with something as large as Facebook, it's interesting, Sean, I just, I'm reading, taking a, what is it called, a 52-week challenge, read a book a week, you know, get the Got the body right with the yoga. Now I'm doing the getting the brain right. I saw your post about this, and yeah. I I still have not uh, submitted suggestions. I do have some though. Okay, that would be I'll awesome. Do that later. But the first book I picked up, and I've been reading it this week, is Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Uh, that came yep. out a few years ago, and he talks about yeah, the. My brother just read that book. I it, think it is a fascinating read. I'm about halfway through it, um, and he says the three things that really brought the world together. Uh, in the past were money, um, which I think you and I both understand fairly well, but uh, steel, as he put it, or empire and you know, imperial governance, and then faith and religion. But I think in the world, the, this day and age with the Internet, uh, where social media is literally 
just a community of billions of connections and interactions, that's a new thing that's bringing people together where Zuckerberg's sitting there talking about, yes, I have clients in China. I have clients all over the world. And most of people who use Facebook are not here. And I think we're all starting to realize, especially with this now, this fear of, oh, is there a Russian behind that propaganda campaign? (laughs) And believe you me, it'll move to China. It'll move to the next group of people we're not supposed to like. That social media and the internet is now this, it's a fourth thing in a universal way, bringing people together. And there will, of course, be this clash over it, growing pains along with it. And I just, again, we come back to the central point of, okay, let's have the growing pains, let's have the conversation, but if we try to act too severely and use political controls to deal with this new technology, it will not end up being how we want it. Uh, You'd have to almost imagine the worst type of person. What could they, the worst possible person say and do? Imagine them with control and power. And that's why we want as limited power as possible. I think think that that is a, um, I mean, obviously that's a central lesson of what, I'll I'll pull in some economics here, but there's a school of political economy called public choice started by James Buchanan and Gordon Tolick, and um, that, that's that's really the core lesson, right? Like the core lesson of public choice. I do talk about this a little bit in PMRC video too, but I think well, there are there are several great lessons of public choice. But the the point of public choice is to look at politics uh, as as I think Buchanan used to say, without romance, right? Without mm-hmm. romanticizing that politicians and government uh, bureaucrats and, and everybody who works for the state, uh, we, we have a tendency to see them as these, you know, they even use this um, this language, public servants, right? You, you mm. call them public servants. You say these are people who are selflessly devoted to the, the greater good of society. They're, they're people who go out and work for the betterment of all of humanity. And the reality is they're just other people. You know, they're they're just human beings, and they have personal interests, and they have uh, conflicts of interest, and they have all these other, you know, uh, failings, let's say, mm-hmm. that the rest of us have, too. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'd be unbiased if I went and, uh, you know, found myself in a position of power over other people. I mean, I've, you know... I'm human like everybody else. Of course, I have things that I'm interested in, things that I want to do, pet projects, pet goals, people that I like more than I like other people, you know? And and so that's what you actually see with politics. You see people rewarding their friends or, you know, in the PMRC case, their their wives, right? <laughs> and uh, um, giving, giving people who are closest to them and who are connected to them uh, special benefits that nobody else has. Well... Imagine that kind of control over the entire mode of communication, global communication now. You know, social networks are not just, I mean, it is, it is the means of communication. It is, it is the way that we interact with each other online, right? Almost entirely yes. at this point. Um, even to the exclusion of things like email and text messaging, uh, I will Facebook message people. Uh, professional relationships with people. I will Facebook message them instead of uh, sending an email quite a lot of the time because it's faster, it gets to them quicker. Um, 
it's a more casual conversation. It gets things done a little bit, a little bit easier. Um, now imagine Congress coming in and saying, well, that's okay. That's not okay. Here are the rules. Here's, you know, here's how this has to work, right? Well, that all of the organic benefit that we've gotten over the last 20, 30 years, gone, right? Gone. Right. Well, and you can delete Facebook. You can't, unfortunately, even if you're Matt Hardy of the WWE and you're woke, and you can't delete, delete, delete the federal government, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, well, and Sean, we got to take a quick break here, uh, pay for the Not show, and uh, hit the weather uh, for folks out there. But again, we're talking to Sean Malone, the director of media at the Foundation for Economic Education, otherwise known as FEE. And coming back, I want to keep talking about free speech. Sometimes when. Maybe something somebody finds hateful or provocative needs to be said to learn that it isn't, in fact, hateful and all that provocative. It's normal. But I also really want to talk about FeeCon. Oh, it's coming, ladies and gentlemen. FeeCon is soon coming. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Yeah, this is one of the songs that um, really upset Tipper Gore when her daughter heard it. Now, actually, given the content of this song, Darling Nikki, off the Purple Rain album, I can see why a mother would be upset having her young daughter uh, hear it. But I also think, and this is what I was teasing at the break, Sean, that you hear Darling Nikki now, and it's mild compared to what a lot of music and uh, other entertainment content brings us. And I think it's actually progress of a kind. When people will step out, you'll think, oh, that's so radical. And you look back 20 yeah. years later and go, well, they were p- pioneers, but really? I mean, that was what was getting people all upset? Yeah, the um, the, the ACDC song that was that was on their list, that the, the TMRC ladies put together a, a list that they called the Filthy 15. And ACDC is one of my all-time favorite bands. Oh, yeah. It's really just one of the top rock bands of all time. And um, uh, the song that, that they got put on the list for was Let Me Put My Love Into You, Baby. <laughs> Which, you know, there's, there's a clear connotation there, right? But right. at the same time, that is that is as as racy as that song gets. That Like, that song has no other language in it other than that line. And that line is said quite a bit in that song, but uh, that's that's it. That's that's all you get. Now, um, compare that to, to uh, you know, any Nicki Minaj song right. today. Or, you know, I mean, like, it's not even... Uh, it's not even close what people are, are saying today. And then maybe, that's, maybe that proves the, the social conservatives are, you know, sort of nannying kind of scolds. Maybe they're right a little bit in that, in that uh, you know, it did create 
more opportunities for society to go that direction. But the reality is, I think that the society is just going that way anyway. Right, and it's almost, it's like, uh, essentially, if, like, there are a bunch of words I can't say on FCC-regulated airwaves, but in order not to say those words, I have to know what those words are. Um, And in the same way, I think the push towards, and I think you make this point in the video, once it had that parental advisory sticker on it, it became this forbidden fruit. Everybody wants to talk about it. Uh, And I think it's the incredible irony. Yeah. And it was, I, I saw that um, when I was doing a little bit of research for the video itself. Well, <clears throat> I think Ice T, the, uh, the rapper, you know, from really from the 90s, if you have a younger audience, they won't probably even remember Ice T. It's sad. But, um, but uh, he had written a song about the PMRC hearings, and I think one of the lines in the song said something to the effect of, you know, don't you get it? Like, it's the sticker that made people buy this album, right. which is funny, but it's kind of true. Cause when I was a kid, that's, that's exactly what all my friends looked for. You know, they would go to the store, they'd go to a record store. And the minute they saw that sticker, they were like, Oh, this is, this is the one I'm, I'm getting this one, you know, cause this one's got the good stuff on it. Right. Like this right. is the one that we're going to take home. Uh, you know, <laughs> it almost seems like breaking bad though is now the shoe's on the other foot. Doug Stanhope has a great bit saying we're going to be in you know, old living homes and talking about, oh, we used to do LSD and sleep around and all this stuff, and now you kids are in, like, nuclear families, and you're trying to censor me. <laughs> and, and you make the point in the video that we actually are seeing this push for censorship uh, in the yeah. name of tolerance from very young people, people younger than us. Yeah, well, and I, and I think that that's, you know, we talked about the, um, the, the Facebook hearings today, and, and I think that that's... Because it's not just Congress, right? Like, that's where some of this is coming from. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like that there there has been this push, particularly uh, younger people, although I, I feel like that that's really been driven a lot by their, their professors, you know, the people in media and entertainment. I mean, there's... Um, there's a big cultural push towards this, you know, really aggressively soft version of, of society. And there are aspects of that that are good, right? I mean, you don't want to, to needlessly insult people or be mean to people for no reason. I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of these, these things started with really good intentions to be honest. I mean, a lot of them started because people were having experiences with bullying or experiences with persecution in various ways. Um, but then we've gotten to a point now where, uh, you know, people aren't allowed to say things for fear of losing their jobs, um, you know, getting kicked out of their, their colleges and universities, um, and then being, being doxxed on social media, all of this kind of stuff. It, it, and that stuff, which is censorship, it is, it's not state censorship necessarily, but it is still censorship, is, is uh, really coming from the left, and it's really coming from younger people. And that's been a little disheartening over the last five, six years. It, it has been incredibly disheartening, and what I've tried to do well, with this show... 
and it's something I hope to talk about if the topic comes up over at FeeCon at the panel, is make it a place where somebody from the left, somebody from the right, libertarian, non-political, atheist, Christian, Muslim, whatever your perspective, uh, a space where people can come on and have a conversation and be provocative, but not have it be like you know pearl clutching. It really be yeah. fascinated by what the how crazy this world is becoming. And if I think our for a while our universal language will be confusion because the world is getting smaller by the day. And so in that environment, you have to instead of playing the role of Howard Beale. Uh, play the role of the person who listens and, and fosters conversation. Um, and I, yeah. I just worry that there is this drive, and the market rewards it to a certain extent, for more and more polarizing, sensational media. Um, in your experience trying to market it to young folks, um, what are the sort of things they're going for? Because I hope they're not just going for the, you know, the rip-and-read headlines. Well, they are and they aren't. They are like everybody else, right? right? right. That kind of stuff, it, this is a conversation I have with people at Fee all the time, and it's and it's a fear I have. It's a fear I've always had uh, about uh, doing media, and particularly once you're in a position to actually start making uh, executive decisions about what you're airing and what you're not. Um, it's It comes with a lot of responsibility, because the easy thing, the, the thing that, the social market rewards is that angry flash in the pan, like bomb throwing kind of, kind of post, right? Like uh, a video that attacks somebody else is always going to get more play, at least up front than one that is, you know, calm and thoughtful and, and offers a a perspective without being uh, needlessly uh, insulting or aggressive to other people. But here's the thing. This this has always seemed to me to be a bad trade-off because you do that, but you do that at the expense of alienating people. So you get views, but a good chunk of those views are people that hate you and will never again listen or trust any trust you or anything that you say uh, ever again. Right. Right. And. So that's not as as somebody who runs a, a media department for an organization that's that's trying to uh, educate people about ideas, about philosophical ideas, about uh, basic uh, economics, uh, political philosophy, things of that nature. It's really important to me not to alienate half the audience immediately, right? So I try to steer well clear of that kind of content, and and I think we succeed for the most part. You know, you. you you um you really have to, especially for an organization as old as Fee, and Fee's 72 years old now, we have to be, I have to think of myself as somewhat of a steward of Fee's legacy and the tone, right? And if I'm putting out stuff that in two, three years, I'm going to look back on and cringe and say, oh, gosh, that was embarrassing, or that was needlessly uh, antagonistic, or that was overly political or any of those kinds of things, I know that I've, I'm going to have done a bad job. And that that looms for me quite a lot. Well, and I think, so it's I think a, about that all the time. It's a short-term uh, attention span and a, a, a search for a short-term gain. I really have thought yeah. about what I'm doing in that 
I can't go for the headline of the day. First off, I will personally just go insane if I did that, uh, given I don't agree with the Republicans or the Democrats most of the time and just the way they present themselves. But if you build towards the long term, that the more that you can leverage a personal relationship with people, no matter it is what you do, but especially if you're like on radio or you're a comedian or you're somebody who is in the public eye, if you might not be popular for a little while. But if you can build over time that this is who I am and I've been consistently this way for years now, you earn trust and I think you earn respect even from people who disagree with you. That's what I found, right? Like what I found is is that the more you are uh, you are honest, intellectually honest, and you are careful about the way that you present yourself, to, and not careful in a in a sense censorious way, right? Not careful in the sense that like you're avoiding saying something that you believe to be true, but thinking about your audience and thinking about the way that they're going to understand what you're saying. Yes. If you do that and you leave room for dissent and you leave room for debate and you don't shut down other people the minute they disagree with you, I've always found it to be the case that they, they people from any walk of life will respect you and listen to what you have to say significantly more uh, rather than what they will do if you, if you just put something that says, you're an idiot, you're dumb, I'm right, you know, in your face. Well, and, which is what you see of a lot of social media posts. Well, and maybe just for clicks, I'll title this as a podcast, Sean Malone Destroys Joey Clark or something like that. <laughs> just something silly. But uh, we're almost like about two minutes left here, man. So I, I want to tell folks about FeeCon, especially Great. if you have young people in their family. This is coming up June 7th through the 9th, especially if you are a college student. You're interested in the ideas of liberty, free market economics, and all sorts of panels going on from... Uh, whatever it is that really floats your boat in terms of your own skill set. Yeah. Uh, so this year is, last year was our first year ever. It went incredibly well. We were so thrilled with, with how the, the turnout and with what we were able to do with, with the event. We're doing it again this year. <laughs> Excuse me. As Joey said, it's, uh, it's uh, June 7th through 9th in Atlanta um, at, the, at the Hyatt Regency Hotel, downtown Atlanta. And uh, what I'm doing, among many, many other jobs, with actually making sure that the event works smoothly and the media is there and everything else, uh, is um, putting together a series of panels for our creative track. And last year, I did one panel with uh, sort of Liberty Network YouTubers and one panel of really just some buddies of mine who are high-level entertainment industry people. And this year is like five times what we did last year. I've got four whole panels devoted to uh, incredible, incredibly talented um, people from across the arts. So this is not just film industry. It's not just, um, you know, TV. But on the panel that Joey's going to be on, uh, it's radio host, uh, a, a very successful YouTuber, a very successful makeup artist a comic book artist friend of mine who works for DC and Marvel. Um, that's just the first panel. Um, wow. We also have two keynotes. It's, it's really, it's going to be mind-blowing. Uh, one thing I should say is, is that the first keynote, it's a little bit of a surprise, but for your listeners, um, is my friend Tina Guo, who is uh, a cellist who co-wrote the, the Wonder Woman theme with, with Hans Zimmer. She's Hans Zimmer's featured cellist.